Uh, well, this morning we're going to be in Matthew chapter 7, wrapping up the Sermon on the Mount, which is not a series I've been in at all, uh, but we're going to be in chapter 7 of Matthew, verse 13 through the end, to twenty, almost the end, to verse 27 right there. Uh, if you are newer around here, we've been wrapping up a series on vision. This is one thing that we do every August when we get back and we get into new school rhythms, semester rhythms, rhythms of life. We want to come back and refresh upon different elements of our vision and talk about how it comes and impacts our day-to-day. Uh, if you are newer around here, one of the ways we talk about our vision is we're very specific about it. And we say we want to be a multiplying, mission-minded family that is marked by God's grace, that brings joy to our city and glory to God. This is who we want to become by God's grace. We want to be a multiplying, mission-minded family marked by God's grace, brings joy to our city and glory to God. And so if you missed out on last week, we talked a little bit about that last section. Like, how do we be a gathering or a people that exists for the joy of our city and for the glory of God? We talked about living in the rhythms that we see Jesus live in and that he passes on to us today. Being a people who worship daily. And in the context of a local gathering of believers, worshiping, like authentic worship, not singing. When I'm talking about that, I'm not just only singing. Worship is so much bigger than that. We're talking about genuinely entering into the act of worship on a daily basis. And as we engage with the Lord Jesus Christ and we gather together here on a weekly basis here in this place, growing daily and in the context of community, serving one another, actually considering one another as more important than ourselves. And then going from this place outside these walls into our community, in word and in deed, is what we talked about this past week, with intentionality. In word, meaning gospel proclamation, understanding the gospel is a message of good news, where people can find life through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what it is. By nature, uh, it's not something that you can just pick up on through observation. It is by nature a message about a God in heaven who loved you and me so much that he sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to come and live the life that we could not live, die the death that we were supposed to die. And three days later, he walked out of that tomb alive and he offers us this free gift of salvation to any and all who can come to him in genuine saving faith. It is a proclamation. It is something that we talk about, tell people about, but we don't just do it in proclamation. We also go in deed. We go with acts of compassion. We do uh, even praying for healing in the community as that comes up. And we expect God to do incredible things because as we see Jesus's life and ministry, we see that he came to undo everything sin destroyed, not just eternally and stuff, but he came to undo everything sin destroyed partially right now, fully still future. And so we go with acts of compassion. We go in proclamation and, and in word and deed in hopes that God would be glorified not only in our city, but all the way around the world. And so we pray for that. We hope for that. And we long that God would do that kind of a work in us individually and in our gathering here at DPC. Uh, one more time as we wrap up this series, I just want to ask you the question that we've kind of come back to and have been around m- many, many times in this series. But the question I want to ask you today is this, what are you building your life on today? Not 20, 30 years from ago, like not when you were a kid, not when you prayed the prayer, you did, you responded to the altar call when you were a kid, um, not, even the, not even the church Sunday school answer or anything like that. Like, like what are you actually building your life around? What are you building your life upon today? The virtues, the practices, the beliefs that you are standing upon today. This is where Jesus takes us at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, if you're not familiar with this, with this whole section, this is Jesus' most famous 
sermon, not just because it's the longest and people are sitting there for a long amount of time or anything like that, but because of the content and the quality of what he is preaching right here. He is he's doing a number of different things as he preaches the Sermon on the Mount. There's a mixed gathering of people all around him, many religious elite, many people that are kind of religiously comfortable, and then those who are seeking and asking questions. And he has them gathered around on a mountainside, and he's preaching this message, and uh, he's doing a number of things. He's, he's, he's kind of describing the upside-down values of his kingdom. He's talking about the Beatitudes, the things that are true in the kingdom of God, and, and they're countercultural to the things that people would typically expect. And so he says things like, blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek, blessed are the downtrodden. All these people that you're looking at their lives, and you're kind of going, okay, there's nothing blessed about them at all. And Jesus is going, no, 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 no. They understand something, and they're going to be able to see something. They're going to be able to receive something that people in prosperity and in comfort may not be able to see. And so he's preaching these upside-down values of the kingdom of God. He's rebuking the religious hypocrisy that's there in the day, understanding that there is a lot of hypocrisy in that gathering there that's continued to perpetuate. It's always going to be there. But he's rebuking the religious hypocrisy of his day. And the way that he does it primarily is by raising the bar of morality so that those religious elite, those uh, teachers of the law, um, so that they would understand that righteousness, this, this holiness that they're after, uh, is not just something that you do. This is what he keeps saying. He keeps raising the bar of righteousness. He's saying, no, no, no. Righteousness is not just what you do. It's not just what everybody sees out there. It's not just the things that, you're, that are done in public. Like true righteousness is found inside your heart. Like I want to know what's going on inside your heart. And so he preaches this and he says, yeah, it's not just, hey, murder. Don't, don't kill people. I, I praise God you're not out there killing people. I want to know what's going on in your heart. I want to know what, I want to talk about the anger that's there, that's rising up inside, which actually stimulates the act of murder. Like that's just as much of a problem. Adultery, praise God, you may, you may not have done adultery, but I want to talk about the lust that's going on inside of your heart, which led to the act of adultery. Like it's, it's, it's not just, hey, can you make a good promise? Can you not just, can, it's not just, hey, uh, yeah, I promise this is going to take place. I want to know if your yes actually means yes if your no actually means no. I want to know the inner motivations uh, of your soul. It's not just whether or not you're able to love friends and people that you're like. I want to know if you're able to love the people that don't benefit you at all, the people that are different from you, the people that you may despise, the people that are difficult to love, extra grace required, that kind of a thing. Like I want to know if you're able to love those kinds of people there. And the point that Jesus is making all throughout this sermon is that, yeah, like God's standard of righteousness really is that high. Like holiness is no joke. Holiness really is perfection, and it is only it is only uh, God. Like it really is that high. And the bad news is Jesus makes it clear all throughout this sermon. He makes it clear that he did not come to reduce those standards at all. Like Jesus didn't come to make the standards easy or to lower the bar or to make everything relative, morally relative to where like yeah you believe that's true great you want to go do that great yeah like he didn't come to lower the bar at all. In fact, he came to raise the bar and like set it up and say, no, 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 it's not just what you thought over there, it's inside too. And so the bad news is he didn't come to reduce it at all, but the better news is that Jesus says that, hey, like I actually came to fulfill the requirements of the law on your behalf. And so this is what he says in 517. He says, I didn't come to abolish the law. I didn't come to minimize or reduce it or at all, but I did come to, I did come to fulfill the requirements of the law on your behalf. In other words, like God knew that we were going to be fallible. God knew that we were going to be broken. God knew that we were never going to get it right, even in external deeds, and especially inside as we examine the heart. He knew that those things were not going to be right. And so he sent his one and only son, Jesus, to come and to get it right on our 
behalf. And so this entire sermon is Jesus raising the bar of morality, of righteousness, of what it means to be holy and uh, what it means to follow him. But then at the exact same time, he's providing a brand new foundation from which we can follow him well. And so he wraps up this entire thing and he does it with a few uh, different images that are kind of lying in the sand sort of images here. And so he wraps it up and he says this in verse 13, enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate, broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree can't bear bad fruit, and a bad tree can't bear good fruit. Every tree that doesn't bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you'll be able to recognize them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? Then I'll tell them plainly, depart from me because I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who builds his house upon the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the wind blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine does not put them in practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain came down and the streams rose and the wind blew and beat against the house. And it fell with a great crash. And so this is, Jesus, this is how Jesus wraps up his most famous sermon in all of Scripture. I mean, it's just four terrifying word pictures here, right? There's a path. There's a road. One is really, really wide. The other is a little bit more narrow. One leads to destruction. The other leads to life. Few who go on that narrow path actually find it. There's two prophets. Both of them look like sheep. But one of them is actually a wolf dressed up like a sheep. There's two trees. One produces bad fruit. The other one produces good fruit. There's two houses. One of them is built on rock and the other is built on sand. One is able to stand the test of time and all the different storms and the other is quickly washed away. And the question that all the people are going to be asking when they're listening to Jesus tell these stories is, okay, like what foundation have I built my life on? Which, which sand, which, which, where do I stand today? I mean, these are line-in-the-sand type of stories and illustrations that Jesus wraps this entire thing up. And the people are going to be sitting there kind of going, okay, am I actually built on the rock? Or have I subtly or accidentally or maybe even intentionally built my life upon the sand? But even beyond that, they're going to be asking the question, okay, what does this metaphor really mean? I mean, what does it actually mean to build my life upon the rock? It's a great metaphor. It's a great picture. We all think that we may be building our lives upon the rock. What does it actually mean to do that? In verse 24, Jesus says, everyone who hears these words of mine and then puts them into practice is like the wise man who built his house on the rock. But then also in verse 22, uh, he says that really religious people, in other words, verse 24 is the people who hear these words and then put them into practice, they're the ones that are like the wise man. But in verse 22, he says that there's a lot of really, really religious people that are out there doing great things. They're prophesying in Jesus' name. They're casting out demons. They're doing miracles. And still Jesus says to them plainly, depart from me, you evildoers, because I never even knew you. In other words, these are people that are religious by nature. 
Like, these are people that you're going to look to and think, hey, they, they, they know what they're talking about. And this is 18 kind of stuff, right? I mean, if you're prophesying, you're doing things in the name of Jesus, right? Not in the name of Jesus at this particular point in time, but you're doing things in the name of God. Like you're doing miracles and healings. That's 18 kind of religiosity at that point in time, is it not? Nevertheless, Jesus is going to look at them and say, you evildoers, depart from me because I never knew you. And so the crowd's going to be looking at this thing, kind of going like, do I know him or do I just know about him? Like, like, do I do I know him? Am I have I built my life on the solid rock? And what's he talking about there? The psalmist is going to help define it for us a little bit more, and his original audience is going to know some of the psalms that they grew up in uh, the Jewish, if they were Jews, that they grew up hearing some of these stories. But in Psalm eighteen too, the psalmist is going to say, "The Lord is my rock." My fortress and my deliverer, my God is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. All throughout the Psalms, so different 25 different times, all throughout the Psalms, the psalmist is going to use my rock to describe the Lord our God. This is who he is. He is my rock. He's the unmoving one. He's the unshaking one. He's the one that has all of my confidence, all of my worship, the entirety of who I am. He's the unmovable one. Jesus picks up on this in Matthew 16. And he continues to use this metaphor, but he, uh, uh, they're in Caesarea Philippi. He's continuing his ministry. He's got all of his disciples there, and they pull away, just he and his disciples. And he asks his disciples, he says, hey, who do people say that I am? And you remember the story, and they start answering the question. They're like, well, some people think that you're John the Baptist. Others people think that you're Elijah. Some people think you're just a great prophet and things of that nature. And so Jesus turns to them and he says, okay, well, that's great. Like, okay, who do you say that I am? And you remember Peter pipes up and he says, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. And Jesus looks at him and he says, Peter, you're right. He says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, his name being Petros, meaning literally rock. I tell you that you are Peter and on this rock, meaning the confession that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, on this rock, the confession of what you just said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And church, this has been the story ever since. Like nothing's been able to tr crush what Jesus started back then. Not Roman oppression, not bad kings, not dictatorships, not persecution, not wars, not holy wars, not great depressions, not natural disasters, not pandemics, not changing cultural dynamics, not changing political power, not institutional failures, not moral failures, not religious hypocrisy or any of the scandals that we see in the world today. You want to know why? Because the church was never built on Peter. The church was never built on the strength of a fallible human being. It was built on the conviction that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. Like he's the one who will not be crushed. He's the one that's unmoving. He's the unchangeable one. Like buildings may close, but he's the one who conquered sin and death. Like, like, like he's the one who came to us, lived the sinless life on our behalf. He's the one who walked out of that tomb alive. He's the one who's promised to come back again and to make all things brand new. And what Jesus is saying here in this text is that when you and I build our lives firmly upon the conviction that Jesus is the Christ, he is the son of the living God, and not just cognitively out there knowing the right answers, but he is my Lord. He is my Savior. He is my God that I'm putting my hope what he's saying, when you build your life upon that conviction and you want to know him well, do what he calls us to do, the rain may come and the winds will blow, but you will keep standing strong. Not only in the final storm of his judgment, which is probably the immediately context of this passage right here, 
But on a day-to-day basis, you will stand strong in the storms that we go through every single day. And so Jesus simply comes with this invitation, and he says, build your life on me. Not just believe in me one time and, and, and run away. I don't, it's, it's not just about the altar call when you're five. No, 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 no. He's like, build your life on the solid foundation of the rock. Build your life on me. Know me well. Follow me in the entirety of how I call you to follow me. Do the things you see me do. And he points to a couple ways here that you can know what you may be actually building your life upon because we know the Sunday school answer. We know the right thing to say. But he says, hey, if you want to know if you're building your life on the rock or you're building your life on the sand, he goes, you need to examine the spiritual fruit in your life. This is where he goes in verse 14 or 16 through 20. He says that a life built on sand, it will not see good and spiritual fruit pouring out from it over and over and over again on a, on, on a consistent basis. Figs don't grow from roots of thistles, he says. Good fruit only comes from good roots. Many things like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control, the fruits of the Holy Spirit, virtues that over time begin to describe the kind of person you become as you are a follower of Christ and he begins to produce his life in you. I want you to notice he's not talking about these momentary acts of fruit that any of us can muster up enough strength and we can do these things from time to time. Like he's not talking about, hey, I know I'm supposed to love that person, so just here today, I'm going to muster up enough strength and courage, and I'm going to go be and do a loving thing right now. He's not talking about these momentary acts of, you know what, I'm going to be patient today on my day of work, and like one time I'm going to get it right. He's not talking about like momentary acts of kindness. Uh, he's not even talking about incredible ministry ability. I'm going to hope you see this in, your, in, in the text right here. He's not talking about incredible ministry ability, because evidently, like you could be a, perfect, a person who prophesies, speaks things uh, from the Lord. Thus saith the Lord. Like you can say that all day long. You can do miracles. You can heal people in the name of Jesus and not actually know Jesus at all. Like it's, it's one of the many reasons we cannot be a people that get caught up in Christian celebrity culture. Are you with me? Like some of the most gifted and talented people that are on TV, that we follow, that we trust, that we, we revere. Like it, it's so easy to put on a show and not actually know Jesus well. I mean, we see it all the time. YouTube, TV, charlatans who sell healing all the time. Charlatans who say, like, thus saith the Lord, and then none of it comes about. We see these things all the time. But what Jesus is saying is that this actually goes beyond just the fraudulent that we see out there. What Jesus is saying right here is that your giftedness is not the same thing necessarily as fruit. Like your giftedness, the things that you do, it's not the same thing as the spiritual fruit that he's asking us to examine right here. In other words, like what you do in ministry, what I do in ministry as a pastor and as a preacher, like it can be, but is not necessarily spiritual, genuine fruit coming from him. And so this one's just a little bit more sobering. I'll just tell you, like as someone who does it professionally, it's a little bit more sobering because what Jesus is saying, yeah, like what you do week after week in the preaching and proclamation of the word is not necessarily the fruit that I'm, talking you, that I'm asking you to examine. Like the things that you do out there in front of other people, it's not what we're talking about here. It's sobering to come back and to say, you know what, the things that are easiest for me to look at all the time, like these aren't the things that Jesus is calling me to look at right here. I mean, it's like Jesus is saying, righteousness is not just the things that you do out there, the things that you do in front of other people, but true righteousness, like it's, it's why you go and do those things. 
It's, I want to know, are you praying when no one sees you around there praying? I want to know what's going on with me and your word when you don't have to preach a message or you don't have to give a Bible study or you don't have to go do this thing over here. Like, what's actually going on inside of your soul? And so I'll just tell you, like this past week, we got together with our preaching team. It's our different ministers. We gather typically on a weekly basis, and we kind of look at the Word, and we pray, and kind of do, uh, we work through a lot of different things. I'll just tell you, we sat there as a ministerial team, and just sat there just sobered by what Jesus was saying right here. That what you do for a job, that what we do personally for a job, is not what he's talking about here in this text. And so we talked about it. And I'll just tell you, like Warren Truesdale, our junior high pastor, had an incredible observation, but he goes, it reminds me of Matthew chapter 25, this famous passage that many of us have heard a number of different times. But Jesus is talking about the true sheep versus the goats. And he says this, he says, come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. And then he says this, why? For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty. You gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. These are the true sheep that he's describing right here. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. And then the righteous, I love this, verse 37, the righteous will answer him and say, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? When did we see you naked and clothe you? When did we see that you were thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the king answers and says this, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did it for me. And he goes on and he makes this observation that many of us are going to get defensive before Jesus on that day. And many of us are going to be looking and saying, Okay, but Jesus, like, don't you understand? Like, I went to seminary. Like, I spent money for you. I signed up for the ministry. I, I, I served out there in food pantry. Like, I volunteered with the student ministry, and that, like, it smelled over there, right? Like, I did that. I, 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 did, I did, did diapers over in the kids' ministry. Like, and we're going to be pointing at all these things, and he makes the observation that many of us on that day, we're going to get defensive because we're pointing to all these different kinds of things that we do. And we're going to be saying, but Jesus, like, didn't I do all these things? But the righteous on that day, they're going to be simply asking this question. They're going to be like, Jesus, when did we do any of that? When did we do any of those things? Like, I wasn't even trying to earn anything. And it's exactly Jesus' point here in this text. Church, when your foundation is on the rock of Jesus Christ, and you are deeply connected to the Holy Spirit, and he is producing his life in you, all that trying over time turns into being. As he begins to produce his life in you, to the point that, like, you love with a new kind of love that's not forced anymore. Because his life is being produced inside of your soul. Like there's a new kind of peace which you don't have to force in your car when you're stuck in traffic that day. But it's a peace that surpasses any and all kinds of understanding which Paul talks about in the scriptures. There's a new kind of joy that's not dependent upon your circumstances and everything going right in your life. Or the season of life that you're in. There's a new kind of kindness in you towards not only the people that you are like but your enemies. And, or your social and political rivals. The people that get on your nerves. Like there's a growing affection for the things of God and a desire to have fellowship with him. Like there's a conviction about sin that wants to move towards repentance. It doesn't lead you into shame. It leads you into a, healthy, a, a, a helpful conviction which comes to repentance and draws you closer to him. Like there's a goodness that is actually inclined to do the things that Jesus says for us to do. Jesus says here in the text, anyone who hears these words of mine and then what? 
does them. Anyone who hears these words of mine and then does them, they're the ones who are like the wise man, kind of like a junior hire and in his relationship with deodorant, right? Like you can believe in it. You can have like all the Axe body spray Christmas kits in the world, but unless you put it on, you're still going to stink, right? Sunscreen. You can believe in sunscreen all day long. You don't put it on, you're still going to get burnt. Remember a little while ago, I was reading a a, a study on uh, this Facebook campaign from 2000. And uh, I believe it was 2006. It was a Facebook campaign called uh, Save Darfur. I don't know if you guys remember what was happening in the world at that time. Uh, Civil war was breaking out in Sudan. Massive unrest all over the place. There was a Facebook group that started, and it got huge. This is kind of, uh, I think, a little bit, kind of the earlier stages, obviously, of social media and Facebook groups and things like that. But the study came and evaluated the fruit in the aftermath of this Save Darfur Facebook campaign. It said more than 1.17 million members had indicated that they were concerned and wanted to offer support in some, of the, in some way to the horrific events in Darfur. To their surprise, they discovered that 99.8% of those who liked the page had never donated to the cause. 72% had never recruited anybody else into those social media circles. Dr. Gray, who conducted the research, said they raised almost nothing compared to what a similar campaign would have raised offline. But it gained popularity because people have an insatiable need to look and to feel great without it costing anything. Gray compares this to eating junk food. He says it's the equivalent of refined foods. It's engineered to make us like it, but it's ultimately empty. And so Gray concluded, he says, Although the Facebook page allowed more than a million people to voice their discontent with the situation in Darfur, it largely failed to transform these initial acts into a deep and sustained commitment to the work. And what I want you to see is like, this is exactly what Jesus is about. It's about that, that, that deep and sustaining life that is found when you and I build our lives totally and completely upon and around the rock of Jesus Christ, his confession that he is the Christ. He is the son of the living God. And so he says, come do that. Build your foundation on me. Know me well. Do the things that I've called you to do. And over time, I'll change all that trying into being. Which isn't to say that there's anything wrong with trying, because trying is another way of saying I'm walking by faith in this moment. We're not going to war with trying or anything like that, but it's simply to say that when Jesus is the rock of your life, that begins to slowly change over time. Jesus, when did we we feed you? When did we clothe you? When did we give you something to drink? Oh, it was when I was doing that. I, I wasn't even trying. I was following you. I was enjoying you. And you began producing your life in me. And so this is the first thing that he points us to. He says, examine the spiritual fruit in your life. Not even the ministry things that you do, but I want to know like why you do the things that you do. I want to know like what begins in here. Is it coming out there? Is what begins in here actually of the Holy Spirit? Or is it some other self-motivation out there? The second thing that he points to is, is basically the bigger question of the text. Like how does your faith respond in a storm. How, how do you respond in a storm? The metaphorical storms. Like how does your faith respond in a storm? Because the storms reveal the strength of your foundation. That's what it does. Both of these houses presumably look very similar. Both of these houses presumably are built very close to each other. And I want you to notice from the text how both homes, they both have to deal with the, the, the effects of the storm. They both have to go through the rain and the floods. It says in verse 25, speaking of the house built on the rock, the rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew, slammed against that house, 
Yet it did not fall because it was built upon the rock. In other words, it didn't matter where it was built. It didn't matter like how beautiful the home was. It didn't matter like how much faith that house had. It didn't matter if they were a part of the prosperity gospel movement or not. And they were expecting like no storms to ever come my way. The storm still came. And the storms test the foundation that you're actually built on. And so again, like, this is where it hits really, really close to home because our environment, our, uh, meaning what we talked about a few weeks back, our environment, our culture, the world in which we live in right now, like it makes it normative and attractive to build on sand. Like, this, is that, this is what's natural. This is what's easy. I was reading an article a little while ago talking about how 84% of all Americans believe that enjoying yourself should be the highest goal of your life. Enjoying yourself should be the highest pursuit of your life. 86% believe believe that you should pursue the things that you personally desire more than anything else in the world. 91% believe to find yourself, you need to look to within yourself, and that's when you're going to find true happiness. Just search, just, just randomly just look inside yourself, and that's where you're going to find true happiness, and that's the thing that you need to pursue more than anything else. We've talked ad nauseum around here about what sociologists call expressive individualism. You can probably define it for me because I say it so many times, but it's this idea that an individual's highest loyalty and highest source of truth should be to him or herself, and it's what secular sociologists are calling the greatest God of our day. Self, self, self. It's what John's talking about when he says in 1 John 2.15, don't love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, meaning the strong desire to feel something or, or have something that I currently do not have. Like these are the things we build our lives on all the time, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes. Like it's, it's the things that play out in things like sexual promiscuity. I need to have this desire. I need, to, uh, I need to satisfy my flesh in this moment. It's things like drug addictions, alcoholism, gambling, hedonism essentially, coveting, lust of the eyes, desiring, longing for, thinking about, dwelling upon the things that I do not have, envy, jealousy, comparison, looking side by side. It's whenever you see something and you've got this thing going on inside of you going like, I need that thing. Like this is what business, big business makes massive amounts of money on. You ever go on Amazon and realize, hey, I didn't actually know I needed that until I saw it, right? I go, Target, this is what you do. Like you drive, you walk on the aisles of Target, you're like, I didn't know I needed that, but yeah, Target nailed me right there, right? I, he goes on, he talks about the boastful pride of life, all right, right? This is a, this need that we have to be better than other people. It's not just to be satisfied, but it's this boastful pride of life, this desire to be better than another. It's this dynamic that we have whenever we say, okay, God, Father, would you provide 10% more for our family? And then he goes and he does it, but then you discover that everybody else in your street has been has raised about 20%. And now all of a sudden that 10% that God's provided is no longer satisfying to you because there's a sensational need not only to have or to be satisfied, but to be better than another. It's what John's talking about with the, the, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. And what he's saying right here is that none of it comes from the Father, but it's all from the world. And all of his desires will pass away. Why? Because it's sand. It's the whole point. Like all of this is building on sand. All of this, why what's so normative in the world around us is to keep building on things that are sand. Everything built on self is sand, self-righteousness. This idea that somehow I'm going to be able to satisfy the holy requirements of God and of my own self. I'm going to be able to do enough. I'm going to be able to earn enough. I'm going to be able to be good enough, holy enough, righteous enough in and of my own self. And It's self-righteousness. It is sand. 
Like selfishness is sand. Hedonism is sand. Anything built on other people's selves, anything built on other people is sand. Celebrity culture is sand. Christian heroes, people we look up to, it's sand if we're building our lives on those things. Even building it upon the integrity of a church, a gathering of people, is still building upon sand. It's a gathering of people around a common confession and mission that understands that we are broken and in need of a Savior. All of it is building on sand. And what Jesus is saying here in this text is nothing that's built on sand is able to stand. And so people get crushed all the time. When the storms come, the testing comes, and the disappointment comes, we sit there and we say, okay, God, why would you allow that to happen to me? Like, why didn't I avoid the storm? Like, I was the good one. I was in the church. I volunteered. Like, why didn't you allow me? Like, why didn't I skip the storm? And in the despair of building on those other things, we get crushed along the way. It's all the deconstruction that is taking place, not only in the church, but all around the world today. It's the deconstruction that's taking place without reconstruction around the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You guys know what I'm talking about here? This is the newer buzzword. It's not a new word by any stretch of the imagination. But as believers getting disillusioned with other believers, not only in the church, the big C church all around you, everywhere, and we start deconstructing or tearing down everything, that, everything around us to see what we're actually standing upon, which can actually be a good thing, deconstruction in and of itself, if you're actually asking the right questions and going back and deconstructing false idols that I may have been clinging to, false foundations that I may have been standing upon. Deconstructing and tearing down and destroying those different things can be fantastic if you're doing that, but then you're actually coming back and reconstructing with the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But the problem is that deconstruction has become such a popular thing. We've clung to it and we destroyed and we teared down and we've run away and forgot to come back to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, this confession. He is the Christ. He is the son of the living God and rebuilt our faith on that. And so what happens? The rain falls. The wind blows. The storms come. The hurricane is devastating. And we have beautiful homes torn to pieces, scattered all over the sand. This past week, I was listening to the Mars Hill, Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast that's popular. It's out there and everything. Uh, Joshua Harris was interviewed on there. I don't know if you know Joshua Harris. You may have read his book in the late 90s, I Kissed Dating Goodbye. 18 years old, became a massive celebrity in evangelical culture. He was being interviewed on this podcast, and his story is public. He's made it public. He has since deconstructed his faith, walked away from the faith. And for a short time, before he got ripped online, started charging people to help you deconstruct your own faith and also walk away. And so this whole podcast episode was a man we love and care for that was a pastor. He was a successful Christian author. He started serving in a church, only to discover that later on that the church was covering up different things. And as a grown adult, he's looking back on his life and seeing all the devastation that he unintentionally brought upon other people through his writing and through his book and then through his leadership in the church. And you just heard in this podcast the pain of a man and as he's wrestling with his own failure and then his own failure as a leader in the church. 
And instead of just saying, hey, you know what, this is going to bring me to repentance and I'm going to rebuild and come back to the gospel of Jesus Christ, he walks away from the entire thing. It's a sandy foundation that is subtly built on self. Why can't I get it better? Why can't people around me be better? Why can't all this thing? And instead of saying, you know what, here are the problems over here, I'm walking away from Jesus altogether. Someone asked me a little while ago, was asked in my interviews here and asked quite a bit as a pastor, they say, um, they always ask this question and they say, uh, how did you survive growing up in the church as a kid? I grew up in the church. I've always loved the church for a really, really long time. How did you survive church culture? How did you survive as a kid growing up in that environment and things like that? The insinuation being, like, aren't you disillusioned by the brokenness that you find within the church? And of course, my answer is, I'm always saddened by brokenness, but my brokenness begins in here. And it's why I continue to sink. My hope was never in the perfection of a church body or the perfection of different leaders or anything like that. My, my hope has always been in the foundation, this confession, Jesus is the Christ. He is the son of the living God. The reality is at 16 years old, I met Jesus and came to understand the beauty and the depth of God's grace. That God's kindness was extended to me in the middle of my 16-year-old silliness, in the middle of my wandering, in the middle of my brokenness, in the middle of all the things that I've messed up. God came and gave me grace and kindness And guess what? It didn't stop when I was 16. It continued at 17 and 18 and 21 and 30 and 35 and 40 and 42 and yesterday and into today. His grace never runs out and my hope has never been in my ability to fulfill the law for me. It's never been in myself. It's never been in other people and their selves. It's never been in an institution. It's never been my hope. My hope has always been on Jesus, who is the Christ, the Son of the living God, his kindness, his grace applied to you and to me. Church, why in the world would we expect this gathering and this fellowship to look anything different from the dinner table that he ate at all the time? Like, where do you find him? Matthew, tax collector, despised by the world. Guess what? I'm eating in your home. And I want you to invite all your raggedy friends with you because I love them and I care about them. Zacchaeus, like I know you're a criminal and you stole from everybody. We're having dinner at your house tonight. Like that's his dinner table. And it's not even like his inner circle. Like think about the inner circle. You got Andrew, Peter, James. Like you got these people that grew up following John the Baptist. They had religious backgrounds. But then again, like I said, you've got Matthew, the despised tax collector. People didn't even like him. He was a traitor to the Jews. He wasn't a Roman. Right? Like, he's a despised in the day. And Jesus calls out to him and says, I want you to follow me. Mary Magdalene, possessed by six different demons, like seven demons, scandalous by nature. Like, can you imagine what that life is like? Come and follow me. Judas Iscariot, who goes on to betray Jesus. Like, this is who he has come and follow me. This is who the invitation is extended to. Church, why would we expect this gathering or any institution like it to be anything other than the dinner table that he ate at all the time? This is the nature of the gospel in which we live in. God loved you and me in the middle of our brokenness, in the middle of our wandering, when we weren't getting it right. And he gave his one and only son for you and me that we can find life in him. And as we build our foundation upon him, the Holy Spirit comes into our life. You grow into maturity, not arriving to holiness until the day of glory comes again, which is still future, not now. But man, we sit there and we sing and we worship and we praise because of the grace that is received every single day. And so I want to bring this to, and I hope you hear me on this, because this is a, maybe some of us are in the middle of deconstruction right now. 
tearing down, evaluating what were those things that I used to build on today, healthy to go back and to look and to say, what was my hope in at that time? I was talking with somebody in between services and was reminded of the very real pain that institutions and positions can, can bring upon people and the damage that's there and the very real battle to separate the pain of what's going on there was saying, you know what? Nothing can shake. I'm following Jesus no matter what. And I may need to deal with things in this relational capacity over here, but I am still with Jesus because he is the Christ. He is the son of the living God and nothing, nothing, nothing can ever change that. Some of us are in the middle of that place. Maybe it's not even you. Maybe it's a a family member, a son or a daughter, a spouse, a mom or a dad or something like that. Church, if all we're doing is deconstructing and we're never reconstructing around the gospel of Jesus Christ, what Jesus is saying is all you're doing is rebuilding upon sand. All you're doing is rebuilding upon sand. That you would come back to Jesus above and beyond anything going on in the world around you. That we would always look at the false idols, the false foundations that we may have slipped into, that we may be standing on a day and deal with it honestly and with integrity. Also with grace, with a desire toward repentance, that we would come back, but those things are never going to shake my foundation. He is the Christ. He is the Son of the living God. He has given me kindness and grace and lives inside of my life. He's returning again, making all things brand new. He has given me life now and for all of eternity. And so, church, what are you building your life on today? I want to end with this image that it's an image that came across a couple a little while ago, but it's from a few years back. It was about a house that survived Hurricane Michael. I don't know if you remember seeing this in the news or anything like that. Hurricane Michael was one of the most devastating hurricanes to hit land and to make landfall a number of years back. It wiped out all the houses on this beach except for one. I love that picture of a house that was built on a solid foundation. The interview with the owner in this article was fascinating. He talks about, he says this, he says, I built this house to sustain the big one because I knew the big one was coming one day. People thought I was crazy when I was building it, but I still built it with 40-foot pylons to withstand 250-mile-per-hour winds. The code was 120 miles per hour. That's what everybody's building on, and he's saying, no, 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 I'm ready for the big one. I built with breakaway walls so that when the winds came, it wouldn't do any structural damage to my house. I built with cinder block walls and reinforced everything with steel cables all throughout the home. And he says, basically, I went above and beyond whatever code required because I wanted to survive the big one. And so each step of the way, I built for that. Church, are you built for the big one? What are you building your life on today? What's fascinating about this picture is that you may notice in the background, like right behind that house, there's another house that was protected that day. It's the house right behind it that was protected because the house in front of it decided to build upon a strong foundation. Your children may be protected and may be built up through you building your life upon the solid rock of Jesus, your neighbors, your coworkers, your friends, your loved ones, the enemies, the people on the other end of the social aisle may be protected because you've built your life upon the rock of Jesus Christ. Church, what are you building your life on today? Is it self? Is it some version of self? like celebrities, spiritual heroes, institutions that are not the rock of Jesus in and of itself? Is it the lust of the flesh? 
lust of the eyes, saying this is where life is found for me, having, 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 doing, 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 satisfying my flesh, all of my earthly desires. Is that what my life is built on? Is it the boastful pride of life being, other, being better than other people? Are you never satisfied because you never have enough? It's all sand. It's all sand. And what Jesus is saying is that a life built on stand will never be able to stand. However, you build your life upon the rock, meaning this conviction, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and you get to know him. You come to follow him. You dig in deep with him. You get caught up in the beauty of who he is and everything that he's done for you. Nothing will be able to take you out in the process. You will stay standing, not only through these temporal storms of today, but in the final storm where he stands in front of you and he says, what are you standing on today? You are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. You'll be like Tim Keller, who's battling terrible cancer right now. Pastor, retired pastor. And he says this, he says, perhaps one of the most ordinary daily benefit of the resurrection I've discovered is this, to follow not a dead, revered teacher, but rather a risen Lord and Savior who knows my pain, is with me in the middle of all of my pain, and is sustaining me and strengthening me every single day. It's a lady I talked to a few weeks back who's going through more life horrors and storms than I could possibly imagine. And I ask her, I say, how are you and your family doing? And she says, Aaron, I don't know how to describe it, but every single day Jesus keeps showing up and he's somehow giving me strength to move past this every single day. Church, my hope and my prayer is that we would be a people that build our lives upon the rock of Jesus Christ. I don't know if you've discovered fractures in the foundation this past year and the storms of this past year, if you've noticed fractures in the drywall or anything like that, that we would be a people as we begin a new semester together in ministry as a gathering here at this church that build our lives totally and completely upon the foundation that is unmoving, that is unshaking, that will never change. He is the Christ. He is the son of the living God. He is your God. He will never change. He will never be shaken. He will never be broken. And you build your life on him. More than anything else in the world, you'll be standing too in the end. Father, we love you, God. We praise you and thank you for what you've done for us in Jesus. God, you are unchanging. You're unshakable, Father. Lord Jesus, I praise you and thank you for giving us your word that we can know you by, for giving us your indwelling Holy Spirit that we can continue to grow in. And I pray right now in Jesus' name that if anybody came in here today and they've only known life built on sand, God, I pray that they would come to know you today, our rock, our stronghold, our fortress forever. For everybody who's come in today and maybe we began building on rock and we've discovered that you know what, I'm building an extension of my life that, quite honestly, it's actually on sand now, metaphorically speaking. Father, I pray that we would be a people that return to you, our rock, our solid foundation. Lord, that we would know the beauty of knowing you well, that we would dig in deep with you, that we would understand the joy of walking with you, following you, growing more and more into your likeness every single day. And God, I pray that as we do that, that you would strengthen someone today who may be in the middle of this storm. God, they're feeling the wind, they're hearing the rain, it's beating against their side. And God, I pray that you would strengthen someone today who is founded upon you. God, would you be with us? God, would you help us? 
May we be a people that lives for the joy of our city and for the glory of your name. That we be standing strong every single day, God. We love you, and again, we thank you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen and amen.